Hello, and welcome to Chad's ADHD 365 podcast. This program is sponsored by Tris Pharma. Tris Pharma uses LiquiXR technology to develop innovative medicines that address unmet patient needs, including the treatment of ADHD and related disorders. Tris Pharma is dedicated to keeping patients with ADHD and their families educated and connected. Visit TrisPharmaProducts.com to find educational resources and more information on Tris Pharma's treatment options for patients six years and older with ADHD. Hi, I'm your host, Susan Booning, and we're here today to learn about ongoing support from your child's doctor. Doctors often recommend a combination of therapies to treat ADHD symptoms in children. In addition to prescribing your child's medication, the doctor may also refer your child to a mental health specialist for behavioral or cognitive therapy. You and your child may also consider complementary or alternative therapies, such as social skills training, parent education and support, and ADHD coaching. Ask your child's doctor or psychologist if any of these options would be beneficial. Next, we will present a model conversation between a parent and a doctor. With me today are Jamie DeMuth, a parent, and Dr. Roberto Olivardia, who is a clinical psychologist. Welcome to you both, and thank you for participating in this helpful role play that we hope will give parents an example of the questions to ask their child's doctor. Hey, Jamie, I'll turn it over to you. My first question, doctor, is, should my child be seeing a child psychologist? I often recommend, you know, with ADHD, because it's a condition that often doesn't travel alone, a lot of times kids with ADHD will have issues perhaps with anxiety, um, they could have issues with mood, with self-esteem, with even understanding the diagnosis. I am a fan of children seeing a therapist to just even in first getting diagnosed to to make sure that they understand what ADHD is, what it isn't, um, and more importantly, really setting up with the parents' support a real solid frame for that child to understand what having ADHD is, the, the challenges that they will have to work through, the strengths that might come along, you know, with either that same way of, of being in the world and that kind of wiring so that it sets them up for success. I mean, one of the other things too is we want children who have ADHD to avail themselves to, to strategies, avail themselves to uh, if they're on an IEP in school and those accommodations and not look at those things as being things that they shouldn't need um, or that they're weak in some ways if they get those accommodations. So part of, to me, of a lot of the work that I do, particularly with people who are just diagnosed, is really setting that firm foundation of, you know, this is, this is what it is and these are the things that one has to sort of work through in, in that way and really instilling a sense of hope that ADHD does not mean that they can't be successful. It doesn't mean they can't get to where they want to get to in life, um, but they might need to navigate it a little bit differently. I've heard about behavioral therapy, but I don't know what it is. Can you tell me a little bit about it and then um, how it can help improve my child's behavior? Absolutely. So behavioral therapy is a treatment model 
where we're really looking at certain actions or concrete behaviors, either things that we um, that are not present that we, we might want to be present. So for example, um, for socialization, we want the presence of socialization. And if our child is withdrawing in social situations, that's a behavior we want to boost. Um, we also might want to target behaviors um, where the presence of them is the issue. So if let's say um, the child is interrupting or the child has, um, you know, is, is, has a low frustration tolerance and is uh, throwing things when they get angry, we wanna target that behavior and really give a child skills to be able to get to a place of, of healthy functioning. So with behavior therapy, it's very targeted. It's very concrete in the sense that we're looking at an observable action that either we want that child to have or we realize is an action that's getting in the way uh, for that child. And so, and it's letting the child know that it's the behavior that's the problem. It's not them, that it's not, oh, you're the problem. It's, you know, there's your, the, the skills or the tools you currently have um, aren't working or you need different tools and different skills to be able to manage these kinds of behaviors. It also has a very collaborative feel too. Like when I'm working, you know, even with children who are quite young, I'll ask them, you know, what they don't like about a certain behavior that might be getting in the way. You know, for example, an eight-year-old that I'm working with right now, um, his friends, you know, find him annoying. He'll say like, they'll, my, my friends, and he puts that in air quotes, and he says, I don't, I think they're probably soon not going to be my friends. They think I'm very annoying. And I said, oh, why, why do they think you're annoying? He's like, oh, because I interrupt all the time, and they think that I think I'm more important than they are, and that's not what I think. Um, and so here's this, and I said, so what would, what would you want us to work on? He's like, I just wish I didn't have to interrupt all the time, but I'm doing that because I'm gonna forget what I'm going to say. And so here's a certain behavior that the child's identifying and it's okay, let's look at this behavior. What are skills that we can learn? And, but with ADHD, it's always first again, providing a foundational understanding of why that behavior is problematic or, or why that behavior is occurring because it's not, yeah, you're annoying. It's, well, let's first understand how having ADHD, when you talk about, how difficult it is for you to hold something in your head and or else you're going to forget it so you just have to blurt it out that's that's something called our working memory and that's something that lots of people with adhd experience i i have adhd myself and so i'm very open about my own personal experience with that and share that and that can be hugely validating to somebody to be like oh okay so this this has a scientific sort of explanation. This isn't just me being annoying um, or me lacking willpower, you know, or in the case of, let's say I'm working with someone who is impulsively eating. Well, I work with a lot of people with ADHD and, and eating issues and impulsive eating. So it's, it's having that understanding and then it's giving them hope that there are skills that we can do to target that behavior. And it's a very collaborative approach. So it's something that a child might be assigned um, I, I try to stay away from the word homework um, in therapy, but like, I'll say, okay, the goal for the week is I want you, 
let's say in the case of, of a child that might have a hard time socializing with people, like I want you to talk to three different kids in your class and introduce yourself to them. And knowing very well that behavior therapy, it can feel anxiety provoking because sometimes you, you're basically assigning to the child certain behaviors that might make them feel a little anxious and letting them know that that's fine and that's that's normal and that things get less anxious over time the more we expose ourselves to it. And then when they I meet with them again, I'll say, okay, how did that work? And sometimes they'll be like, well, I didn't talk to three people. I only talked to one. That's fine. How did that one you know, work? Because we also want to model in behavior therapy that it doesn't have to be perfect because we all know that having ADHD can sometimes undermine the treatment of ADHD. So even with behavior therapy, that the executive functions involved in, okay, how do we make sure that that child or teen remembers to do that quote unquote homework, you know, in some ways. So part of the therapy and the behavioral treatment could be how to help them remember to do those things, which is helping them in other areas of their life as well. I've also heard about cognitive therapy. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And then the same, like how how would that be helpful for my child? So with cognitive therapy, a lot of times cognitive therapy and behavioral therapy are together. We call it CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. The behavior part really targeting actions and, and uh, behaviors. The cognitive part is really targeting the thoughts and self-talk that people have. So for example, and this is very important for as far as uh, working with kids with ADHD, going back to your first question around really helping children define what ADHD is. And I have to say, unfortunately, even with a foundational understanding, I think it's very hard to escape not having some negative self-talk creep in there. I mean, just even thinking about my own experience, like there are going to be times where you see other people do things so easily and so fluidly, and you know you might have to work three times harder sometimes to sort of get that. And how you think about that is really important because if you think, okay, well, I have ADHD, this is why I need to do this this way. I'm going to learn, you know, different tools and strategies. Then that's one thing. But if your thoughts say, maybe I'm not that smart. Maybe everyone's telling me I'm bright, but I'm really not because this is much harder for me than it should. Maybe I'm really stupid. Maybe I'm, an, I'm kind of faking it. Um, a lot of people with ADHD struggle with what's called an imposter syndrome, like this idea that if they're doing well enough that they feel like, well, if people only knew behind the scenes, then I don't know if they, how they would think. Like I, I think in my own experience, like I didn't consider myself a good student until college. Like when I went to college, that was when I really considered myself a student. Prior to college, I felt I navigated and I got by and I felt like I hustled sometimes like and I didn't read anything from beginning to end that was assigned to me in high school. I read bits and pieces and I was good at getting the gist of it. And it's not that I thought I was dumb, but at the same time, I felt like what the perception was of me was different than how I felt it to be. And so that self-talk is so important to address because we don't want children feeling stupid and having these expectations of themselves. So with cognitive therapy, it really targets this, this self-talk and particularly inaccurate self-talk. Um, and so there is this, this term called a cognitive distortion, which refers to patterns of thinking that we actually all 
have at some points in our lives. But if we do it a lot and with high intensity, it can really run into problems. So for example, all or nothing thinking is a type of a cognitive distortion. So we're either perfect or we're a loser. We either have to get a hundred or we might as well get a zero. And if we think in that way, that's a hard way to get through life thinking in all or nothing ways. And yet and many people with ADHD might fall into that line of thinking. So cognitive therapy would say, well, let's examine the thought. And again, CBT, like behavior therapy, there's a very collaborative feel. It's not like therapist sits back and is a si is silent and you know the kid is sort of not having any direction. It's very collaborative, like, well, let's look at that thought, you know, and let's examine it for its evidence in some ways. And I always try to make it fun by saying like, we're gonna be our own detectives and our own researchers and our own thinking basically. You know, is, is there a middle area? Is there a gray area? Um, what would that even look like? Another cognitive distortion that could affect social people's social functioning might be something called mind reading, which could be, oh, I feel like people don't like me. Okay, well, let's first examine that. You know, what evidence do you have? Now, sometimes people have evidence of that and we'll still work at that. So maybe they don't like you because you interrupt. So that's where the behavior therapy comes in. But sometimes people might have those thoughts and it's like, mm, it's just a feeling. There's really, there's no evidence of it. It's like, and then a lot of times it could be what that person thinks of themselves get, gets projected onto how they think other people see them. And so with cognitive therapy, we're targeting the thoughts and we're really dissecting them. We're examining them. But the process of that in and of itself is so helpful, I think helpful for anybody, but particularly people with ADHD, because what you're teaching really a child is what's known as metacognition. You're teaching them to be aware of their thoughts, like, and thinking about their thinking. And like, hmm, that's interesting that I find myself getting really anxious before a test. Well, if I have all or nothing thinking, then that makes sense, because all or nothing thinking will fuel anxiety. If I feel like I have to be perfect or I'm a zero, well, that's a hard way to go into an exam versus seeing like, well, I'm going to do the best I can. And if I get a B, that's great getting a B because um, none of us are going to be perfect. No one's perfect in, in that way. So the cognitive therapy really helps people identify those traps that we can get into with our thinking and recognize them because we can't control our thinking, like how a thought will just come in, but we can control and start to work at observing that thought saying, hmm, is that an accurate thought? Is it helpful? Is it helping me? Is it motivating me? Wait a minute, this, act, this way of thinking, no, this doesn't work. And I notice I have that all or nothing thinking. And now I'm going to say, no, I don't have to have a hundred in order to be a good student. Like there are lots of ways and we can almost see our thoughts as like clouds in the sky that sort of just come and go, you know, in, in that way. Um, so that, that's what cognitive therapy you know, does. And honestly, for a lot of people, and again, for people with ADHD, because you can be impulsive, sometimes it's very eye-opening to them to be aware of what their thinking is. Like I've worked with so many countless young people who will come back, you know, after let's say I give them an assignment of logging down automatic thoughts that they might have in situations. And they come back and they're like, gosh, like I'm pretty harsh with myself. I'm, I'm not kind to myself. I talk to my friend in a much nicer way than I talk to myself. And that's precisely the goal of cognitive therapy is having people recognize 
how they're speaking to themselves. My next question is kind of figuring out which therapy is best for my child. I am a mom and I have three kids. Two of them have ADHD, but they're on different sides. One is the hyperactive impulsive. The other is kind of that inattentive. What type of therapy do you think would be best for them? So in terms of psychological therapies, um, the you know, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy can be helpful regardless of, of the presentation. It just w- it may be targeting different behaviors. So for the hyperactive impulsive individuals, the behaviors might be some of those impulsive behaviors, how to rein in you know, some, some of that impulsivity. For the inattentive types, it might be how to bring them out in some ways. And I, I've worked with members of the same family at, at separate times and sometimes who present differently. And when I'm meeting with the parents about it, um, they're like, yeah, you know, it feels confusing because I feel like I'm telling my impulsive child to hold back a little bit. And I'm telling my inattentive child to like, come on, like, just be more impulsive, you know, in that way. And it feels like these contradicting messages. I'm like, no, it's not contradicting. What you're working with both of those children is to regulate both of them to get to a really a similar kind of place. We don't want our kids to be passive. We don't want them to be aggressive. We want them to be assertive. That's sort of the regulated space. We don't want them to be intrusive, but we don't want them to be withdrawn and limiting themselves. We want them to own and be in their space. So CBT is very helpful. There's another type of treatment modality called dialectical behavior therapy or DBT, which was initially designed for people with borderline personality disorder, but has since been empirically validated for a lot of anxiety, depression, lots of different things. And I I frankly think everyone can benefit from DBT, which is a very skills-based treatment model. And it has four modules, mindfulness skills, emotional regulation skills, distress tolerance skills, and interpersonal effectiveness skills. I mean, who who can't benefit from (laughs) from all of those? Um, And for a lot of people with ADHD, I integrate some DBT as well. Like how how can we be mindful and and kind of be in the moment, um, noticing things and being aware of things? How do we regulate our emotions? We know people with ADHD are more likely to have emotional dysregulation, which we really conceptualize as an executive function. How do we tolerate stress and distress? And how how can we be in relationships where we can, you know, tolerate maybe some of the uncomfortable feelings and conflict or um, awkward situations and be assertive and express our needs? Um, And which is incredibly, again, helpful, particularly for kids with ADHD who we really want to promote a sense of self-advocacy. We want them to be advocates for themselves. So those skills work very well. And then talk therapy can be extremely helpful as well in terms of just having them understand who they are, um, you know, not and the parts of who they are that include the ADHD and the parts that they might see very separate, you know, than, than the ADHD. And I think all of those modalities, and then with, with young people as well, um, working with parents, whether it's parent coaching or having meetings with the parents as well of how, how to parent a child, you know, with ADHD, because we all try to do the best that we can do. But there is no you know, manual of, okay, well, what might work for one kid might totally be different. We think of it as a neurodiverse condition, and that might mean that even parenting strategies might be a bit out of the box, you know, in some ways as well. And so working with parents too, to educate them and help them understand. um, And I, I could give you an example. I remember in third grade, 
we had to write a paragraph of a, we were assigned a Greek god or goddess and I got Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And I was just staring, I mean, this is aging me, but typewriter, the typewriter days, staring at my typewriter and I just couldn't write anything. And um, my brother, I have an older brother, he had a queen cassette tape and the first song on it was Another One Bites the Dust, which if you don't know that song, you have to know that song, best bass line ever in a song. And I'm a big music fan. So I played that and all I can tell you is that that the doom, 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 the baseline just opened my brain up and I was able to start typing. And my dad, who very close with, he's no longer with us, he did not have ADHD and he was a teacher. And he said, oh, you know, you can't do work while listening to music that's going to distract you. And of course, I didn't know then what I know now, but I said, dad, all I can tell you is I put on the music. Literally, I remember making the motion. It opened up my brain to this day, have gratitude for him for saying, well, I'm, I'll leave for like 10 minutes and I'll come back and we'll see how it works. And I'm so eternally grateful for that because by the time he came back, I was done writing what I needed to write. And that was like the beginning of what, and I've never written anything, Jamie, since then, I've never written a thing without music playing. Part of the work really in working with young people is, is working with parents and letting them know this may work. And you know, in a way, you're kind of, we're also, parents are also being their own little detectives too, you know, and in, in that. Um, so a combination of all of those things can be very helpful. The power of music, it really can help stimulate your brain. Absolutely. Um, how, as parents, um, will we know if we've chosen the right therapist? So with ADHD, it is so important to work with a therapist that really has expertise in understanding ADHD, where it's not just that ADHD is one of many different conditions that might be eighth or ninth in the level of specialization. Um, and I say that because you'd be surprised. I mean, even in my training, getting my PhD, considering the prevalence of ADHD, the amount of time in my graduate education, which was a great graduate education, However, devoted to ADHD was half of one class was devoted to ADHD. I learned more about schizophrenia than I did ADHD. And not that I shouldn't know about schizophrenia, but schizophrenia affects about 1% of the population. ADHD is a lot more than that. So the, it, we really didn't learn as nearly, I mean, my education about ADHD is you know, my personal experience, but is also post getting a PhD, reading books, going to the International Conference of ADHD, you know, that it was, it was all, you know, through that, it was not from my training. And so I tell parents, don't assume that just because somebody has a PhD that they, and given the prevalence of ADHD, that they had adequate training on ADHD. They might not. I, it's sad because I've talked to therapists who, I mean, even this happened probably a couple months ago, I was doing a consultation with a patient and talking to the previous therapist and um, and it was clear that this this patient had ADHD and and he said yeah he goes I, I don't I never really entertained it because they did really well in school and I'm like oh and it's like no like it, but if you ask the person like they were procrastinating they were pulling all-nighters writing the paper they were copying their notes multiple they were compensating big time. And there was a tremendous amount of anxiety that came along with it. So to answer your question is ask the therapist, 
do you specialize in ADHD? Do you see a lot of patients with ADHD? Um, you know, what, what is your training in ADHD? Um, you know, are you comfortable working with different presentations of ADHD? Uh, do you work with people who have ADHD and a comorbid condition, perhaps like anxiety or learning disabilities or things like that? I tell parents, feel comfortable asking like, what percentage of patients do you work with who have ADHD? And my feeling is that a therapist should feel comfortable answering all those. If they don't feel comfortable answering those questions, to me, that's right off the bat. That's sort of an indicator of, um, you know, someone who probably isn't going to be, you know, good to work with. So a therapist that that feels comfortable, because the other thing too is that, particularly with hyperactive presentations, um, you know, that's an energy part of a work of a therapist is you're you want to engage and feel empathy and and connect, you know, with your patients, and it means is your is that therapist's office. ADHD friendly, you know, especially when you're talking about young children, um, you know, do you, do you have fidget toys? Do you have games? Do you, how flexible are you? Like my kid, I don't know if he can sit on the couch. He might want to sit on the floor. Is that okay with you? Like for me, I'm all about, like, if the kid wants to sit on the floor, I will sit on the floor. If they want to play Jenga while we're having a therapy session, that's what we do. You know, like, you kind of have to go with that flow versus if you sense that the therapist is very rigid in their style, um, that, you know, often doesn't work very well um, with someone with ADD. Because part of it is also what we're trying to model to children. We're trying to model to them this sense of flexibility and being open to different strategies and how to sort of regulate themselves. Um, so, and then the other piece is personality. You know, there are a lot of great therapists out there and it doesn't mean that all of them are gonna be the right fit for your child. If, you are a chi if your child, let's say, is more introverted, they might need a more extroverted kind of therapist to sort of draw them out or perhaps too extroverted of a therapist might overwhelm them, you know, in some ways. And so sometimes I often recommend that parents meet with the therapist for a session before, you know, even the child and get a sense because you know your child best. And so you kind of, you'll know, oh, this person will really jive like with my kid versus, mm, you know, this person's knows ADHD and they, they know their stuff, but I don't know if the style would work for them. Um, you know, some kids respond better to a younger therapist and some to an older therapist. And um, so it's okay to be, to be picky. You know, a lot of times, you know, parents will say, oh, I feel like I'm being too picky. I'm like, this is your child. Like, this is like this, if there's any time to be selective, it's, around your child and around getting them the best treatment. Now, unfortunately, sometimes people don't always have a lot of options, um, you know, given where they might be living, you know, in, in the world and in, in the country. And so, um, you know, sometimes people have to work with what they have. But I also in, invite parents all the time to share with me what they think, if they feel um, that something could benefit the, the work, you know, the therapy, you know, it's, having that open line of communication with parents, I think is really important as well, because you're in the front line at home seeing stuff that I may see a very, you know, different version of in the one hour a week that I'm meeting with someone. So I, I often say having a therapist that is, has a good line of communication with parents, particularly for young people, 
is really important as well. Those are some great um, questions to ask, things I, I wouldn't have thought about, and um, certainly things to consider when we're choosing a therapist. Um, my next question is, are there any complementary or alternative therapies that we should consider? So in terms of um, when we think of, you know, even with complementary alternative, one of the things I always caution is with ADHD, there's a lot a lot of information out there about ADHD that is very misinformed and not written by true ADHD experts in terms of, um, you know, have your kid not eat any sugar and gluten and their ADHD symptoms will go away. Um, you know, I've seen craziest things. I saw an ad that one of my friends had sent me of a store in his town that claimed that CBD can cure ADHD. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, and it's, and it's what's sad is that as parents, we want the best for our children and not, we don't know what we don't know a lot of the time. And so a lot of times people will, will fall into some of these things and because they're doing what they think is best for their kids. So in terms of when we think about therapies, what we know has been empirically validated, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectic behavior therapy, um, medication certainly has a decades of research, you know, behind. And then there are things that we know can also be helpful for ADHD, but we don't necessarily consider them in place of the treatment. So they're adjuncts, they're supportive to it. They're complementary in that way. So for example, exercise is one of those things. However, I would not say, okay, well, let's have a kid with ADHD just exercise and they don't have to do any of the other kind of work. That's not, that will help manage certain things, but there's a large part that exercise doesn't, you know, cover. Um, but physical activity absolutely is very helpful. Um, it it stimulates neuronal growth in the brain. It discharges stress. It helps with concentration. It helps with sleep. It helps with metabolism. Um, so having and studies will have shown that. Um, not just ADHD kids, but honestly, all kids. I'm thinking of a study where they had kids exercise for 45 minutes on a treadmill before they started the school day. And they found that the kids who did the exercise versus the kids who didn't um, tended to have more energy throughout the day, had higher scholastic achievement, you know, when all other variables were controlled. So that's, that's very important. Um, sleep is incredibly important. And we don't think of sleep as treatment in some ways, but these are fundamentals that first, you know, I want to talk about like the bottom of the pyramid, which is sleep, eating, exercise. If those are off balance, then everything else is just going to be sort of destabilized. Um, how is your child sleeping? Do is, and we know that sleep issues are common for people with ADHD. Um, how regimented is their bedtime? How structured is it? Do they sleep through the night? Um, and working with their doctor um, in terms of uh, if there are sleep problems, if there's potential sleep apnea or night terrors or sleepwalking and things like that, which are actually quite common in, in kids with ADHD. Poor sleep will, it just drains the fuel out of the tank even more. Eating, how are they eating? We know that people with ADHD really find sugar very appealing. So it's not that sugar causes ADHD, but people with ADHD love sugar um, and it stimulates dopamine in the brain. And for a lot of kids, they might find that very appealing, but a lot of times even nutritionally, nutritionists will tell you it's not um, just what we're eating that 
um, can be the problem. It's what we're not eating that sometimes is the bigger problem. So it's because let's say if let's say a kid is eating sugar and simple carbohydrates, they're filling up on that, which means they're not eating perhaps enough protein, magnesium, omega-3, zinc. So definitely really having that well-balanced diet. And for some kids who might have significant issues with either whether it's food sensitivities or are trying different kinds of foods, sometimes working with a nutritionist can be um, really helpful. So the eating, sleeping, exercise foundation. And then there are other things, you know, like mindfulness skills, which I mentioned is one of the models of, of DBT. Mindfulness, it can be, it's really, it can be its own kind of treatment modality um, as teaching kids with ADHD certain skills of how to be presently focused to sort of be in the moment in, in those kinds of ways has been, you know, very useful. Understanding that because with ADHD, um, kids are craving and need a certain level of stimulation and school is their full-time job, so to speak. What else are they doing outside of school and being attentive to those other things that what we want are activities that are going to generate a positive amount of energy, discharge, you know, energy and things that um, are not going to be in a sense like habit forming. So for example, video games could be a great release for you know, kids with ADHD. However, too much of video games might leave them feeling not actually energized after, but depleted in some ways that doesn't help them regulate. Um, it almost becomes like an addictive kind of behavior. So being aware of what are those other activities and, and helping kids feel successful too in things. And, and video games, I know with a lot of the young boys in particular that I work with, they feel very successful in video games. And, you know, I grew up in the 80s and I was, my parents were were ahead of their time. I was the last kid on the block to get an Atari and it was purposeful, they said, and it worked because I wasn't good at it. And so video games never was an issue for me, but it's because I wasn't good at it. I wasn't getting the reward from it. But some of these video games today, I mean, they are quite complex, so I don't want to throw it all out because I do think there is a lot of facial awareness and hand-eye coordination and things like that, but it's, it's all about regulation with, with any of those things. So it's, it's being open to that, but if there are things that seem like when you hear about things like CBD and, and things, these, anything that claims to cure ADHD already, you want to discredit. Um, and, and really look for the evidence. So for things that kind of feel a little bit out there, you know, you might hear about hypnosis. Um, there's no evidence that shows that hypnosis, I mean, mindfulness is very helpful and there's an element of mindfulness in hypnosis, but other than that, that's not really gonna be, you know, as helpful. Um, there's um, acupuncture. I mean, the, the studies I've shown find again with acupuncture in, inherently in that can have like a mindfulness component of being in the moment that can be helpful. Um, I haven't seen studies that show that, you know, acupuncture really relieves sort of those um, symptoms other than the idea that you're kind of still and in the moment and paying attention to your body can be very, very helpful. Um, so if, if in doubt, look for the evidence and ask, you know, ADHD experts, like, is this something that, you know, has been well studied and well proven, um, you know, and if it's something is not going to be harmful, you know, in, in any way, that's when it's like, okay, well, let's, let's try it and let's see, you know, how, how this works. But I always tell people be very careful when it's certainly anything that goes in someone's body, like that's 
CBD, there's no evidence that shows that CBD is helpful for ADHD, or certainly um, anything that costs a lot of money that is out there that unfortunately there are a lot of vitamins and supplements and companies that are like, hey, this can help with with ADHD. Um, We really want to question. I mean, we know again, good nutrition, omega-3s, things like that have been seen and have been proven. So it's not that all of it is a wash. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of companies out there that market themselves is, and I think prey upon, you know, parents that are just trying to do the best for their kids. Another question is about ADHD coaching. I've heard about it. Is that something that could benefit my child? So coaching is, can be a, a very good it could be a complementary part of of the therapy. And sometimes therapists kind of can integrate sort of like a coaching modality um, in it. But so one of the main differences, a lot of times like coaching can look like cognitive behavioral therapy, like we're targeting a certain behavior, what are the skills or things that you you want to practice in doing. And a coach is just like a therapist can be almost like a level of an accountability, um, except we, you know, we say uh, we want to be an account buddy because accountability has this like cringeworthy uh, <laughs> factor to the word. So it's like I'm I'm your account buddy, and so if you are, um, you know, have to work on this project for school, shoot me an email, you know, or a text, and let me know. Okay, what what is the day and time you're going to start? And then send me an email or text once you start that. And then I may shoot you a text in the middle saying, how's it going? And now if the person is off track, and I and this is a no shame, no judgment, it's just data. If the person's off track, it's like it's helping them be mindful to, oh, I just went down the Netflix rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> let me, you know, and then it's like, okay, how do we get you back on task? So it's literally coaching them through a very specific thing. Typically a therapy session could be 45 to 60 minutes, you know, typically once a week, it could be more. Now the benefit of a coach, a coach could say, you know what, we're going to check in 15 minutes every day around your goals for the day and what you're working on. Um, it could be, you know, a three minute check-in or something. Basically what you're trying to do is instill a level of accountability and very concrete goal setting. And sometimes for some people I'm working with because the issues of what we're working with in therapy really um, take up a lot of space that having that coaching part of it would take away from some of the other stuff that we're doing then I recommend to parents, like it would be good for them to also have like a coach in addition to the work, you know, that, that we're doing. There are a lot of different coaches out there um, that are certified. And again, it's just asking a lot about training experience, probably more so with coaching is that anyone can pretty much call themselves an ADHD coach. And there isn't this sort of uniform body of training that says, oh, okay, you know, we at least know if someone has a PhD in clinical psychology, we have an assumption of the kind of education and training that they've had in general. Doesn't mean they've had it ADHD specifically. Coaching, some people have gone through multiple courses of coaching or an ADHD coaching course. Some people have not. They just have ADHD and they think, oh, I have ADHD so I can coach people with ADHD. You, you definitely want to inquire about their experience, what kind of work they do, how they work, um, the fee structure. Um, But coaching can be very helpful. And for a lot of young people, there are a lot of great executive function coaches that work with some of my patients around homework. Coaches can also be very helpful in 
helping the parent-child relationship, which can sometimes get tense between whether it's homework battles or getting chores done in the household. And a coach can sometimes work with the family to really help kind of be a middle person in that process. What kind of ADHD education and support groups are available to parents? So I think that's a great question, that there's a lot of great education and support for ADHD. Um, I recommend you know, to parents to uh, check out CHAD, um, Children and Adults with, with ADHD, um, and you know, getting just access to sort of webinars and podcasts. Um, I you know, recommend the International Conference of ADHD. When you have a child with ADHD, just like for the person themselves with ADHD, learning not only from the experts, but hearing from other parents is super important. If um, whether if there's a, a local support group, whether it's through Chad or through your child's school system, parents need other parents who have children with ADHD to talk to about it because it can feel very isolating if um, all the kids are in circle time and your kid is never getting in the circle for circle time. Um, and it can be helpful to talk to other parents who have those kinds of experiences or navigating an IEP process. Um, you know, if your child has, whether it's ADHD and or a learning disability, which 50, 50 to 60% of kids with ADHD have a learning disability. Um, I have a son with ADHD and dyslexia. So looking at whether it's um, groups through the special education, um, a lot of, in Massachusetts, we have like a, it's called a CPAC, a Special Education Parent Advisory Council. It could be a local CHAD group. It could be um, through you know places like CHAD, getting books about ADHD by experts. You know like uh, Russell Barkley, who's uh, the godfather of ADHD research. Um, I recommend to parents to uh, he has YouTube lectures online and learning about how the ADHD brain works. There's actually a, a great YouTube channel called How to ADHD by a young woman named Jessica McCabe who has ADHD. And she produces these very colorful videos. I mean, she knows her, her audience well. But yeah, talking to, to other parents, talking to educators, and just being a consumer of that information, because it's truly knowledge is power. And I find, you know, even where I am in my life, and just knowing that I'm in this field and in this world, when new studies come out that I read about, I'm still feeling a sense of validation of, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like that's why X, Y, and Z about even how I operate and helping me understand my child better and helping me understand you know, patients better. So with ADHD, there, it, there's just more and new research you know, coming about, but those, those are definitely the sources I often have people start with. You're so right. Um, just getting to know other parents and knowing that you're not alone, that's, it's really invaluable. How can social skills training help my child develop and also help them maintain healthy relationships? That's a great question because social skills are one of those things that can really be a determining factor as to how pleasant the experience of school can be sometimes for kids with ADHD. And I can tell you from my experience, if it weren't for my friends and the social venue of school, it really would have been miserable for me. I did not like school prior to college, but I did look forward to seeing my friends. And, and that was super helpful. When you have a child that 
either doesn't have those social skills or has trouble in that area, it is so important to treat that and to really give the child those tools because good social skills can really be a very strong compensation. You know, it's a very strong compensatory factor in helping them through certain things. You know, it's one thing to think, okay, well, if let's say, because not all children with ADHD hate school necessarily. However, if you do, or if you find school very difficult and whatnot, having those friendships is really important. And also to know, we don't have to have 10 friends or 10 best friends, that there's the difference between zero friends and one friend is profound. You know, the difference between one friend and five friends isn't as big of a difference relatively as the zero to one. You you need to have, it, it's so important for your child to have that. Um, I highly recommend, there's an ADHD coach named Caroline McGuire, who just recently wrote a book, I believe a year or two ago called Why Will No One Play With Me? Highly recommend for parents who have children who have issues in that area to check out that book. Um, she does such a fantastic job really outlining the areas that kids with ADHD and, and neurodiverse kids in general might have in the social arena and gives very practical, concrete skills and tools of how to help with that. And in the therapy that I do with kids, I often will integrate a lot of social coaching and social mindfulness because again, it, we understand that for a lot of kids to have good social skills, we have to have a certain level of executive function. We have to be mindful enough to hear what people are saying so we don't miss the cue. We have to, we have to regulate ourselves enough that we're not off-putting to other people. You wanna manage any anxiety for kids that might have social anxiety and things like that. I'm glad you brought that up because that's so key. It's so central. Like it's, it's because the kids that don't have that really could run the risk of depression. Um, and when you have ADHD and you don't have friends, it can be a very, it can be very painful. Is there anything you think that I didn't ask that would be important to know? I would say the only other thing is in terms of the role of medication that, um, you know, not everyone with ADHD takes medication or uh, needs medication. And at the same time, medication is, extremely helpful and effective for a lot of people with ADHD. And I guess as a message to parents is I don't want parents to feel um, that they failed their child if, they're, if their child is taking medication. Medication doesn't have to be a last resort. A lot of times parents will say, well, we'll try if it's a last resort. And I guess the analogy I often bring up is like if, if your child is squinting throughout the day because their vision is not good, we wouldn't try all of these things before giving them glasses. We would buy them glasses. Like it would be pretty straightforward. We're not gonna say, well, sit in the front of the class and squint or, you know, and, and I get it. I understand, I'm a parent. I understand how, you know, there are a lot of concerns. And, and again, if, you're, if that's a route that you're taking, same thing, talking with the, the prescriber, whether it's the primary care or psychiatrist, ask a lot of questions. Don't feel like you can't ask questions in terms of you know, side effects and, and whatnot. But these stimulant medication has, medications have been around for decades. They're widely studied, probably more studied than most classes of 
um, psychiatric medications. They can be very, very helpful. And they're also very trial friendly. And what I mean by that is an antidepressant, for example, like Prozac, someone would have to be on at least two to three weeks before we can start. And they have to take it daily to see, is it working? Is it not? An ADHD stimulant medication, you know pretty much the day you take it, whether how it's working for you. And if it doesn't work or if they're really nasty side effects, they it washes out of their system pretty quickly. And in a couple of days, they might be able to try another you know, medication. It's to understand too that for, and I, again, it's always fueled by wanting the best for their child, that parents have concerns of, you know, is this going to change my child? Is my child going to get addicted to this? I don't want them to use it as a crutch. Um, they're not, they can't get addicted to it because they're not, their brain is not responding. An ADHD brain is not responding to that medication the way that a non-ADHD brain would respond to that medication because that medication is, is basically doing, it's, it's leveling basically, you know, the attention regulation and impulsivity and all of the, what we know about the ADHD brain um, that lends itself to those ADHD traits and medication is targeting that. But in the sense of a crutch, I guess I bring it back to the glasses example is like, well, you know, I wear contact lenses. Like, uh, would you say my contacts are a crutch for me? I don't think they're, I mean, that word has such a pejorative sense to it that it's like, no, this is, is it something that I need in order to function with, you know, in the most optimal way? Yeah. In the same way that I, I you know, I have a CPAP machine. I have severe sleep apnea. I, I have to sleep with that for the rest of my life. I'm not ingesting it as a pill, but it is something I attach to my face, like, like Darth Vader <laughs> every night, part of what I need. If I don't have that, then do I call that a crutch? No, that is a medical resource that I'm so grateful exists. Having parents just get educated about it because I know, again, we are always doing the best that we can do. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there about these medications and you want to just go to the experts and read about it and get educated about it, but it can be very effective and at the same time, there are a lot of kids I work with that don't take medication, that the behavioral and all of the other stuff we talked about today works very well for. Thank you so much for all the information and the insight that you shared today. Oh, thank you for all your great questions. Afterward, the frequency of the visits that you as the parent and your child will make to your child's doctor will depend on how things are going. But appointments should be regular and scheduled, not just made to respond to a problem. ADHD can be a lifelong problem, bringing different challenges at different times. And you, your child, and your doctor must meet regularly to best meet those challenges. I'd like to thank Jamie DeMuth, our parent, and Dr. Roberto Olivardia, for this wonderful conversation. And we hope that parents will have similar conversations with their children's doctors. Thank you both so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast sponsored by Tris Pharma, the makers of LiquiXR technology. Tris Pharma is committed to supporting the ADHD community through education and innovation. Learn more at trispharmaproducts.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chad's ADHD 365 podcast.